when I was just a little kid, maybe four years old, I was playing outside one day when I found this rock. It was a great rock. Big, too. And my toddler eyes, it was like a boulder. So I picked that thing up and I lifted it right over my head. Kind of like Atlas putting the world on his shoulders. I felt like my incredible four-year-old strength just hoisted this big boulder up right over my head. I felt so proud of myself. But my mom felt differently. When she looked over and saw what I was doing, she immediately said, Drew, put that rock down. Now, the way that I remember things happening from there were that in this incredible four-year-old strength I had, I threw that boulder way up into the sky. I couldn't even see where it went. My mom has told me that things went a little differently than that. She said that after yelling at me to put the rock down, I did just that by immediately dropping that rock right onto my head. Apparently, it was quite an ugly ordeal after that. There was quite a bit of bleeding that went on. Thankfully, I have no memory of that part. In fact, I don't have a lot of memories from my childhood in those early years. And I can't help but think that these things are connected. In fact, as some of you actually already know, I jokingly refer to this incident from time to time when I forget something. I'll say, yeah, well, I, I dropped a rock on my head when I was little. That's probably not the real reason for my poor memory, but that's the one that I go with. Because we all have an excuse when we forget something, right? You know, it might be, well, I just have a bad memory. Or, or we'll say that it's just my age or, you know, the rock thing. We all have something. And sometimes these are legitimate reasons. But, but what excuse do we give as Christians for our poor spiritual memory? It seems to me that there are so many times in our lives as Christians that we, we forget, or at least we live as though we have no memory of, all the things that God has done for us and for his people. And all the victories that he's brought, all the miracles he's performed, his power that he's displayed towards his people and in our lives. And you see, our failure to remember what God has done often leads us, as his people, into living lives of doubt and fear, hopelessness, and even selfishness. But we aren't alone in this. It seems that God's people have long had trouble remembering the great things that he has done. We're going to talk about that this morning as we turn together to Joshua chapter 12. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to take it out. Turn to Joshua chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to use one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you. If you'd like to use one of those, you can turn to page 178. Page 178. Joshua chapter 12. And in this chapter, my prayer is that we're going to see some of the ways that we can prevent spiritual memory loss in our lives so that we can live with the confidence and the hope that is assured to us as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, it's to just take a moment to remind everyone what happened last time when we were in Joshua chapter 11. In that chapter, we found a coalition of kings came together to form a large army described as numerous as sand on the seashore. And this army was to fight against God's people. Yet we found that God gave Joshua and Israel a great victory on that day. The very end of that chapter, verse 23, it summarized it this way. It said, So Joshua took the entire land, just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel. 
according to their tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. And we'll find later, as we continue on in the coming weeks, that there were still enemies in the land. There were still battles to be fought. But the large-scale war that Joshua and the Israelites had been embarking on, that had come to a close. And chapter 12 serves as sort of a bridge between these these major battles to the division of the land that we're going to come to in chapter 13 next week. So right now, let's see, what's chapter 12 all about? Let's start in verse 1 together. It says, These are the kings of the land whom the Israelites had defeated and whose territory they took over east of the Jordan, from the Arnon Gorge to Mount Hermon, including all the eastern side of the Arabah. Sion, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. He ruled from the Aror on the rim of the Arnon Gorge, from the middle of the gorge to the Jabbok River, which is the border of the Ammonites. This included half of Gilead. He also ruled over the eastern Arabah from the Sea of Galilee to the Sea of the Arabah, that's the Dead Sea, to Beth Jeshimoth, and then southward below the slopes of Pisgah, and the territory of Og, king of Bashan one of the last of the Rephaites, who reigned from Ashtaroth and Adrei. He ruled over Mount Hermon, Salica, all of Bashan, to the border of the people of Geshur and Makkah, half of Gilead to the border of Sion, king of Heshbon. All right, verse 6 says, Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the Israelites conquered them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh to be their possession. What is this talking about? These verses are actually talking about events and victories that Israel won before the book of Joshua even began. All right, so back in Numbers chapter 21, when Israel was still following Moses, they sent word to this guy, Sihon, king of the Amorites. And they asked him if they could have permission to travel through the country that he ruled. Essentially, Moses and the Israelites said, hey, Sihon, look, we don't want any trouble. We just want to go through your land. And we won't won't take anything, won't even drink a drop from your wells. We just want to waltz on through. Well, Sihon didn't like that. But instead of just saying no, he decided that he was going to gather his whole army up and he was going to go fight against Israel. Bad idea. Sihon brings his army out. And God allows Moses and Israel to completely crush Sihon and his whole army. Then, right after that happens, this guy named Og, king of Bashan, did the same thing, came out against Israel, and he was also defeated. ...side of the Jordan River. So far, our whole study has been about what the Israelites did on the western side of the Jordan River as they followed Joshua. Verse 7 starts the recap of all of those things. It says this, Here's a list of the kings of the land that Joshua and the Israelites conquered on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal Gad in the Valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir. Joshua gave their lands as an inheritance to the tribes of Israel, according to their tribal divisions. The lands included the hill country, the western foothills, the Arabah, the mountain slopes, the wilderness, and the Negev. These were the lands of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. 
Right, the, the chapter goes on from here to list a total of 31 kings defeated by Joshua and Israel. But you know, as you go through the rest of the chapter, other than a few kings, countries who are mentioned for the first time in the book, most of this that we're reading, it's, uh, it's a recap. This is information we've already read. It's things that have already been recorded in Scripture. And if you're like me, that leads to the question, so what's the point of the chapter? I couldn't shake that question as I read this. Because, you see, I believe that every, every word in the Bible matters. I believe that. So I started wondering, why, why, why did God see fit to include this whole section that's just recapping a bunch of victories? Why were these things important for Israel to be told about again? You see, understanding why it mattered for them will help us understand why it matters for us today as well. And first things first, I believe that one of the many reasons that this chapter, this recap, were important was so that God's people would not forget the victories that he had given to them. Because you know what we're really good at as people? We're good at forgetting things. We're great at forgetting things. Don't get me wrong. You might have a great memory because you didn't drop a rock on your head when you were a kid. <laughs> But as God's people, we tend to have poor spiritual memories. So we have a tendency to easily forget the things that God has done in our lives and for his people. Look, there's, there's a reason that God was always having his people in the wilderness and in the promised land set up these monuments. There's a reason that at the beginning of the book of Joshua, God told Joshua over and over, be strong and courageous. There's a reason that many times in the Bible, details and events are told to us more than once. It's because we are a, we're forgetful people. And God tells us things over and over because he wants us to remember his goodness. He wants us to remember what he's done because he knows that it's, it's to our benefit to remember these things. You see, there are a couple dangers to forgetting what God has done and the victories that he has won for his people. Let me share a couple of these dangers with you. One danger is pride. If Israel forgot that all that they had received came from God, well, then eventually they'd start to credit themselves with all these things. Now, Moses actually warned Israel about this way back in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He told them to be careful, be careful not to forget everything God had done for them, how he powerfully led them out of Egypt, how he guided them in the wilderness, how he commanded them how to live, so don't forget these things when God brings you into the promised land, into this, this blessed land. He says, don't forget this. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17, Moses said that if they lost sight of what God had done, he said, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. And Moses said in verse 18, he said, but remember the Lord your God, for it's he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. In other words, Moses was trying to tell them that if they, if they forgot that God gave them every single one of these victories, if they forgot that God gave them this land of abundance, that God allowed them to carry off 
this great wealth from these nations, if they forgot all these truths, it was going to lead to pride in their lives. And you see, with pride comes this self-sufficiency in our lives. Uh, it's that idea that, yeah, I've done pretty well, but I don't need God. I think sometimes this is what we fall into as Christians today. I mean, how many times do we do the same thing? We, we go to God in the midst of our troubles, our trials, our temptations, our health issues, and we should go to him in these things. And then when he brings a resolution, we praise him like we should. We praise him when, when he brings that financial blessing, when he brings those relationships into our lives. But then time passes. As time passes, a lot of times our, our praise And then, and, and maybe you've experienced this, before we know it, that thought comes that says, look at my life. It's pretty good. Look at, look at all these things I've, I've accomplished. And then comes that self-sufficiency in our pride. We start to think, things are pretty good. I've done well. I don't really need God. So, so we stop making time for God. We don't really make time for prayer anymore, for his church, for his word, for his purposes. We forget everything that he's done for us. And sadly, many times when we fall into that mindset, it takes a tragedy to remind us of how much we need him, to bring us back to God. In fact, you keep reading in Scripture, you'll find that this was true for Israel. When Israel did fall into pride and self-sufficiency, when they forgot about what God had done, it was often in tragedies, when their enemies started to rule over them, that they saw how helpless they were. And they remembered how much they needed him. You see, chapter 12 is a reminder that God, God had a 33-0 record against these enemies of Israel. And the only time that Israel lost a battle was when they went into battle without God. These 33 victories were God's victories. Israel was just blessed to be a part of the success. Think of it this way. I was watching some videos one day of one of the greatest boxers of our time undefeated in his professional record. Incredible fighter. And as I was watching these videos of some of his media conferences, I couldn't help but notice the crew that he always had with him. You could tell who was in his crew. These guys had nice new suits on, gold chains, gold watches, laughing, they were having a good time. And I remember thinking to myself, that's a pretty good some role in the organization and what goes on. But if you're really thinking about it, it's the fighter who gets into the ring, who faces all those opponents, who took them down in the ring. He was the undefeated one. These guys, they were just blessed to be a part of the success. Well, Joshua and Israel always needed to remember that God was the one who took down all the enemies that came against them. They were just blessed to be a part of the success. Sure, they had a small role to play, but God was undefeated in battle. They were blessed by that. And if they humbly remembered each victory and the God who gave those victories to them, then they wouldn't need to live in fear when enemies came knocking at their gates. Instead, in those moments, they could say, you know what? The God who rained hail down on our enemies, the God who prolonged the day in battle, the God who confused enemy armies, the God who went 33-0 and 0 when we came into the land, yeah, he can take care of this too. But they needed to remember these things. Years later, Israel had a king 
who many of us have heard of, his name was David. One of the great things about David is that he often spent time remembering the victories God had brought to his people. Just go read through some of the Psalms. You'll see a lot of examples of this. One example is found in Psalm 143. And in this Psalm, David, he's crying out to God about his enemies. And as you read it, it's almost like David stops, takes a breath in verse 5 to say, yeah, I remember, I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. Uh, another psalmist, Asaph, cried to God in Psalm 77 for help. And in his despair, he said this in verse 11. He said, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I'll remember your miracles of long ago. I'll consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You're the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. In other words, these psalmists realized when enemies came and difficulties presented themselves, they, they said, you know what? I'm going to remember everything that God's done. And I'm going to trust in him throughout all this. And when we remember, church, when we remember that no enemy can stand against God, that no one can stop his purposes, we'll find that there's no reason for us to fear. That was true for Israel, and it's true for God's people today. Like the Israelites, we need to constantly remember that God has never been defeated by his enemies, which means that we don't need to fear our enemies. Not, not because we'll defeat them in battle like Israel did. We haven't been called to win battles. We've been called to win our enemies to Jesus Christ. We've been called to point them to the only one who can save them from sin and hell. But when we fear that calling to share the gospel, when we fear those enemies who come against us, we need to remember the victories that God has brought to his people in the past. We should look to places like the book of Joshua and remember how none of the Canaanites could stand against God. Or we can move forward in Scripture and look at how when our Savior walked this earth, we, we had so many examples of the fact that none of the demons of hell could stand against him either. When Jesus rose powerfully from the dead, he proved that sin and death could not stand against him. I mean, at what point, at what point have God's enemies ever defeated him? If mankind, if the devil, if the demons, if death itself are no match for our God, then why should we ever fear any of his enemies? Instead, we should have the same mindset of the Apostle Paul. It said in Romans chapter 8, he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? So Christians, when we look around and we see enemies surround us who gather like sand on the seashore, we don't need to fear, fall into self-sufficiency. Instead, we should turn to the God of victory for strength. So the question is, how can we how can we make sure that's our life practice? How can we prevent this spiritual memory loss that seems to be so common? I want to offer just a couple, a couple points to that. First, believers, we need to read God's Word. We need to read the Bible. And I'm not talking about reading it once a week or hearing it preached one time on Sunday. If we only need it at one time, then we'd be good to go. But we don't have memories for that. We don't have memories good enough for that. God recorded these victories more than once because we need to read about these things more than once so that we won't fall into fear and pride, so that we will remember what he's done, so that we look back and constantly be reminded of the ways that he's brought victory to his people. Like the psalmist, we need to meditate 
on God's word. Does that describe how we treat the Bible in our lives? We meditate on it. Second, we need to praise God for what he has done for his people in the past and what he's done in our lives as well. And I think this needs to go beyond our normal prayers of thanks. Uh, I think a lot of us, when we pray prayers of thanks, and I've been guilty of this before, our prayers sound kind of like this. We say, uh, dear God, thank you for good food, good job, good family, good friends. Amen. Short, sweet, and to the point. We thank them, right? But if you think about it, of all the things God has done for us, is this really all that we can come up with? And for the sake of time, I didn't try and embarrass myself and read every name of those cities at the end of the chapter. But those details are important. Every detail listed in the chapter was a reminder of what God had done and should inspire praise among his people. The details are important. So what if, what if our thanksgiving towards God went a little deeper into the details? What if instead of dealing with generalities in prayer with God, we got into the specifics? What if our thanksgiving towards God was specific and we said, you know, God, thank you. Thank you that today you gave me new breath. Thank you that today you saw me safely on my way to work when I drove to work. That you gave me words to speak in that meeting that I had and that you held my tongue back when I talked to that person who has been living as your enemy. Thank you for helping me in these broken relationships that I've had. Thank you for that raise that I got. Lord, it came at just the right time. God, thank you for what you did when you helped me in my health issue last week. Yeah, I think we look at Joshua chapter 12 and sometimes we think to ourselves, it's a lot of unnecessary details that the Lord included there. But that's not true. These details aren't unnecessary to God. They're the details of what he's done. And you see, when we praise God for the specifics, we'll be sure never to forget the successes that he's brought. We'll remain humble. We'll remain dependent on him. And that's what God wants from his people. I realized that I could have lumped Joshua chapter 12 in with several other passages, but I really wanted us to see that Joshua chapter 12 matters, believers. You know, for some of us, there may be no solution for our poor memories. We can't undrop rocks on our head or reverse the aging process but we can sharpen our spiritual memories to the very best of our abilities by constantly pouring ourselves into God's word every day and by living lives of thanksgiving towards him. Church, the truth this morning is that when we constantly give God glory for his victories in the past, we'll be prepared to rely on him in the present. If we're always giving God glory for the great things he has done in the past, that when things come against us in the present, when difficulties come and enemies come and set themselves up against us, we'll be ready to fall right before the Lord and ask him for strength to deliver us as he has in the past, to give us strength the way that we know that he can. So believers, I'd encourage you, even this morning, as we close with our invitation song, spend some time thanking the Lord for the things that he's done. in delivering Israel from so many things. Thank him for his power in giving them the land. Thank him for the things that he's done in your life. Because the same God who delivered them from every enemy is with you. He's with you in your spiritual battles.
He's with you to strengthen you and give you the right words to speak as you share the gospel with your physical enemies in this life. And nothing can stop his purposes. So let's be a thankful church. And in our lives, let's thank God for the specific things that he's done. And let's commit to meditate on his word every single day. And let's do that together. If you're here and Jesus Christ is not your Savior, if you've never given your life to him, you're not a believer in the Lord, you're not his follower, you know that's true. If that's the case for you, then before you leave, I just want you to understand the victory that Jesus Christ won for you already. You see, the Bible says the problem is that all of us have sinned against God. We've broken his commands. That's what we do when we lie, cheat, steal, lust, take God's name in vain. On and on that list goes. The problem is, these sins aren't taken care of. When this life ends, we're going to be separated forever from God after this life in a place called hell. And the bad news gets worse because we can't make up for our sin. Nothing we do, no amount of good works, is going to make up for sin in God's sight. So praise the Lord that God's Son, Jesus Christ, came to this earth and did the thing that we can't do. Jesus lived a perfect life. And because of his perfection at the end of that life, he stood in our place. He was our substitute, took all the punishment we deserve. That's what he was doing when he died on the cross. And Jesus was buried in the grave, and if that's where he stayed, it wouldn't matter for us. We'd still be hopelessly stuck in sin. But he didn't stay in the grave. He powerfully rose from the dead, proving that he is the Savior, the Son of God, the only one who can rescue us from the sin separating us from him. And the Bible says... That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So in closing, friend, if you've never made that decision, let me just tell you a few things that will happen the moment you give your life to Jesus. Please know the moment you give your life to Jesus, he'll forgive you of all your sins. The moment you give your life to Jesus, he will forget all of your sins, past, present, and future. The moment you give your life to Jesus, he will come and live within you and allow you to live and love in a way you have never lived and loved before. The moment you give your life to him, you become a part of the greatest family on earth, the family of God. And the moment you give your life to him, he will give you eternal life. So that when this life ends, you can be confident you'll be with him forever. So the question this morning is, if you have not already, are you going to give your life to Jesus Christ? Because you can do that before you leave. And that will be the greatest thing you can ever be thankful for. Let's pray together. Friend, if that's you, if, if you know Jesus isn't your Savior, you can't say with confidence that you've received that forgiveness, that salvation. You don't know that when this life is over, you're going to be heaven with the Lord. But if you're ready to change that, if you're ready to give your life to Christ, you can do that right now. You can come forward during the invitation. You can talk with me. We can pray together. But if you're ready right now, go to Jesus Christ in prayer. Admit to him that you know that you're a sinner, but that you believe he died on the cross for your sins and that he rose from the dead. And give your life to him. Ask him to forgive you, to be your savior. And I promise you on the authority of God's word, he will save your soul. Father, I thank you for all the ways that you love on your people. Because we can be a forgetful people, Father. 
We forget the great things that you've done. You're so patient with us. Thank you for that. Thank you for being patient. And in 143 years, you've done a lot of things here at First Baptist Church of Oxford. I pray we'd constantly be praising you for them. I pray that we'd thank you for the things that you're doing right now as we get ready for new ministries like another season of Upward Basketball and all these kids signing up, new ways to reach our community. Help us always be found thanking you. And help us as a body of believers to always, always thank you for that salvation that Jesus gives. For the free and full forgiveness that are found through faith in him. And help us in that thanksgiving to go and share that good news with somebody. Help us to do that today. So that you'd be honored and glorified. Father, we love you. But every single one of us has thousands upon thousands of reasons to see how much you love us more. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.